How do con artists manage to influence people? It seems like we should know better, but still somehow they manage to exert influence. The psychology of influence is a, a really fascinating area and it overlaps, I suppose, with many domains because you know, you're gonna look at criminology, but you're also going to look at sales. You're gonna look at communications training. You're also gonna look at relationships. There's also a, a sense of self-influence as well. How do we kind of talk ourselves in and out of things? So very varied area. But it's a nice area to look at because often by recognizing patterns or methods that are used consciously or unconsciously by people who influence us or when we influence others, you can, you can do a couple of things with that. One, of course, is you can be careful that you don't get talked into something which isn't a particularly good idea for you. So that, that's useful to be able to, to see that. But the other thing is, is you can often repurpose those tools. So sometimes the same skills that a con artist might have uh, to influence somebody can actually be the very same things that you could use to change patterns or habits within yourself. You could kind of learn, you know, well, why is this working? And there must be some kind of fundamental fact about human psychology there that they're tapping into. And can that be used for positive purposes? So it can be interesting to, to look at these case studies for that reason. So in terms of dispelling myths, I think one thing really important thing to appreciate here is this is not about intelligence or even about being street smart necessarily. There are a number of methods that con artists use and whether it's, you know, traditional confidence tricksters or whether it's kind of online scams and things like this, it's rather easy on at least some level to be drawn in to some of these, these schemes and you should feel never any shame if you have been on the receiving end of this, which is unfortunate, but the research shows that that is sometimes what people feel and uh, that's, that's, uh, that's not fair. It ain't your fault. However, of course, just because it's not your fault doesn't mean that you mightn't want to do certain things to help protect yourself a little bit more. And this is, I think, where part of the problem is a lack of familiarity that we have with our own psychology. Again, not our fault. I mean, psychology as a discipline is about 120 odd years old. So it's a rather recent thing. Now, of course, it's existed for thousands of years in other formats, but it wasn't necessarily the case that we would, you know, growing up and going to school, stop and think about how influence and how communication works. So if we never learned that, you know, if we spend years and years studying other subjects, but we didn't even spend a day on that formally, well, then it's no surprise, to be fair, that we don't notice some of these patterns. It doesn't mean we don't still have great skill in that area, but very often we do things without knowing how we do them, and therefore it's harder to pick them out maybe if someone else is doing them. So this is a, a large topic area, so I'll just pick out a few, I suppose, key themes which are interesting to focus on. One is by meeting needs. So a huge part of communication and influence is being able to connect with a person where they're at. So if a person is particularly vulnerable because of a need they have, it could be somebody's particularly lonely, somebody offers companionship. It could be somebody's in a particularly poor financial position, so somebody's offering the promise of money and so on and so forth. It could also be that somebody feels their self-esteem is low, so there's prestige being offered. There's a feeling of being special in some way, and so on. So that 
need we have creates a potential vulnerability. And it basically allows our own mind to be complicit with stories or narratives. So when we get the email promising us something, or when we hear from somebody something that we haven't heard in a while, but we've really felt a need for it, we become incentivized to believe that because it feels good. And, you know, again, we might look back and say that doesn't make any sense, but it also doesn't make sense to watch a film and to empathize with the character while watching it. You probably know they're an actor. You probably know it's just a TV. It's not really happening in front of you. But it feels good to believe that story for a while. We get something from it. And whether that's a romantic movie, whether it's a comedy movie, whether it's an action movie, there's some fulfillment in that. So it's a similar kind of a system that comes in when somebody meets the needs that we have. Sometimes we're incentivized to do it. Now, another related uh, tool or feature that's used is selective attention. So this is, you could say, a kind of a hypnosis, but it's not the old Hollywood idea of waving the watch and influencing somebody that way. It's a little bit more every day than that, but still rather powerful. And what I mean by hypnosis, what hypnosis is really all about is focused attention, absorbing or immersing your attention in a particular way. So sometimes just by excluding other things that a person doesn't normally think of, you can start to believe what's in front of you. So this relates to the example I just gave of watching the film and TV. You kind of forget about the living room. You forget about your day-to-day -day life and you get caught up in the story that's being told. So very often when something's repeated, particularly when emotional intensity is used, if there's a, a hard look story and you're an empathic person, these are all the kinds of things that can draw your attention in. And that's what good hypnotic communication is. Marketing companies are experts at it, drawing you into a story so that you feel certain feelings and start to feel that way about the product. And related to that, so the, the con artist may well draw your attention in and kind of exclude other considerations. The other thing, though, they'll often do is they will use false testimonials or maybe true testimonials, but from people who... Uh, our accomplices to build credibility. So if we have any doubt, the problem is we might have some doubt. It's not that we've totally fallen for it, but we still want to believe because something good is being promised on one level or another. So we want to believe, but there's some doubt. So what they will do is they will meet that doubt in advance. They'll say, you know, you probably have doubts about this. I would too. So they seem very personable and likable. So with the doubt that you have, here's what I'd say to that. And they've already come up with a solution to the doubt. So it seems like, well, you know, they, 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 they've resolved my concern there. Somebody else has had a good experience. Therefore, even though if you were to really stand back in the cold light of day, you still might be skeptical. It's amazing how getting caught up in the moment can be powerful. And very often, uh, urgency is a feature that's used. That's a standard part of sales training as well, scarcity. You know, so act now or else. So that's usually a bit of a red flag. You know, a little bit of breathing space in most circumstances ain't a bad idea, particularly if it's something particularly critical or being able to draw on other people. Very often that you might be disconnected from other people and then it's this need to act in a particular moment. And 
as part of that, a good example of, of this is uh, if you've ever seen that film, The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, gosh, is it an exhausting thing to watch. Uh, it's well made because you get the feeling of that wa- Wall Street lifestyle that they're leading just by watching it. You feel exhausted watching the film. You can imagine how they feel when they're in, in the situation. But you know, one of the, the strategies that's being shown in that film is these are dodgy stockbrokers selling stocks that aren't really worth anything. But what they deliberately do is they don't go in and cheat a person. What they do is they go in and take the person's money, but then actually give them a really good return. So they go, wow. And then the question they ask is, okay, now do you want to reinvest that for more money or do you want to cash out now? So the person says, well, if I've made this much, Imagine how much more I could make if I reinvested all of this. So they reinvest all of it. And they might do that two or three or four or more times. And what that does is it builds rapport. And on a neurological level, that makes sense because when we have a a good association of having a good experience, we, we just emotionally then feel that feeling of trust. That becomes wired into us. And it's kind of hard to resist that. And that makes us much more susceptible to going along with something even though it might make sense. So it's kind of like one plus one equals two. Great, great, yeah, good, that makes sense. You know, a bit more skeptical at the beginning, so you're checking it. Two plus two equals four, fabulous. But then all of a sudden, the numbers don't start adding up. But at that point, we're operating from a place of trust. And we operate from a place of trust uh, for a number of reasons. One, because we're just nice people, you know, (laughs) we're not out to challenge and question everything the whole time. But the other reason is because we have to. You know, if you're really to question everything to the fullest extent, you, you wouldn't really get through the day. There are so many things we have to make some basic assumptions, but we do make those assumptions on the basis usually of previous positive experience in that area. And then we feel that it's worth on the strength of previous experience committing in that way. So that's the kind of strategy that can be used. And a big theme, I think, in all of this uh, also is reciprocity. And reciprocity just means to reciprocate. So very often, you know, maybe they'll do something for you. It could, it could be like the the stock example where they make you money, but it could also just be doing you a favor or helping you out or you know seeming particularly um, particularly amiable as a person, very tolerant of a challenging situation which they might put themselves in, but you know blame you for, but then be forgiving of it, <laughs> things like that, and. As a result, that builds trust, but the problem is it's been done cynically. It's been done with the uh, aim of exploiting it at a later point. So the con artists who are out there, uh, we're watching you, we're learning from you. We're taking some of those tools and we're reclaiming them back to, to use for positive purposes. Do remember that it's not necessarily always conscious and intentional. You know, we think of the classic con artist who's you know, the, the person in the suit with the briefcase and they're smooth talking and they're going out with a particular aim in mind. I'm sure that exists, although there's, of course, online forms of it nowadays and any number of other variations. But it's also the case that uh, we can just sometimes all do it to some degree if we're not being particularly ethical in our purposes. So it is nice to reflect sometimes. And, you know, the kind of the formula I like to use is what I'm about to say or do or my actions or my intentions, are they good for me? Are they good for other people? And are they good generally for the world that we're all in? 
you know, as, be- as best you can. It can be hard to know sometimes what the perfect action is. But you'll normally know pretty clearly if your intentions aren't at least aligned towards that of you being honest with yourself. Is what I'm trying to do, is it also good for me today? And is it going to be good for me next week, next month, next year? And the same for everybody else. So if you kind of challenge your own motivations a little bit, you know, in a positive way, just to make sure they're aligned in the way you want them to be, well, then hopefully you can find that you are actually, you know, at least meaning well in what you're doing as opposed to having negative or cynical purposes. So everything that I've just talked about can be reclaimed because if you want to create positive change, Equally, that happens well when there's good rapport and connection with other people. So that can mean that social supports can make change easier, which is why you know getting together in groups can be really good or working with friends or, of course, therapists or things like that as well will be part of it. The principle of a focused attention, definitely a very, very important thing because sometimes the problem is if we have, let's say, a difficulty with anxiety, What are we doing? We're focusing on the anxiety and we're practicing it again and again and again. But if we wanted to train ourselves to feel a greater sense of ease, well, then maybe it's the ease that we should be focusing on, not the anxiety and practicing that. doesn't mean you're dismissing the anxiety, but you may be focusing on positive ways of addressing it and bringing more of that to the forefront of your attention and maybe excluding things that aren't helpful, that are just negative reinforcers. So when you're considering uh, these, um, these... various tools, it's nice to be able to, in a day-to-day sense, notice how these are being used. And, you know, feel free to do that from today. Notice it in advertising. If you know any con artists, <laughs> notice what they're doing and draw some of that back and use it for good. Why not? If you found this valuable, do like, subscribe, and share. And what's your experience? Do you have any questions or topic suggestions? You can contribute in the comments on social media using hashtag BodyMindSelf or on JFL.com.